This is the Sales Gravy Podcast. Hi, I'm Jeb Blunt, best-selling author of Fanatical Prospecting Objections, Sales EQ, and Inc., and I'm here to help you open more doors, close bigger deals, and rock your commission check. Welcome to another episode of the Sales Gravy Podcast. On this episode, I've got Richard Fenton and Andrea Walsh, who are my very favorite people in the entire world, because they write awesome books, and they're just really fun to hang out with. They get a brand new book out called When They Say No, and we're going to be talking about this. This is a follow-up to their mega bestseller, international, global hit, like one of the biggest books ever written in sales, Go For No. If you haven't read it, you've been under a rock. So, But if you haven't read it, go get it. Uh, go for no. Before we get started, I want to talk to you a little bit about Sales Gravy University. Sales Gravy University is where sales professionals and sales teams from all over the globe, big and small, come to learn how to sell. And what's amazing about Sales Gravy University is that we have some of the best trainers in the world, people like Kendra Lee and Amy Franco and Anthony Anarino, Victor Antonio, Tony Morris. All of these experts are on Sales Gravy University distributing their wisdom to salespeople from all walks of life. And if you've got a team, you can come in and get a team account. If you're an individual, you can come in as an individual and learn. And what makes us different is our live courses that we teach every single week. So when you hop on, you have the opportunity to jump in mastermind peer groups, hop on to virtual instructor-led training taught by our master trainers, or take on-demand courses at your own pace on any device. You can get your very first course for free. Now, this is for people who have never taken a course on Sales Gravy, but if you've never taken a course before, you can get your very first course for free by using the code FREECOURSE when you go to learn.salesgravy.com. That's learn.salesgravy.com. Use the coupon code FREECOURSE. Andrea Walls and Richard Fenton, let's talk about rejection. I'm going to set you up awesome. with this, okay? So yes. Um, because I wrote a book called Fanatical Military Recruiting, and because of that, I teach military recruiters, and so do my master trainers. And in every single class we're in, and I have this on video, so it's you know it's amazing to watch people like express this feeling, watch their face because this is sincere. Every single class, we'll have we'll have men and women who have been in combat. They've had people shooting at them, trying to kill them, and they will tell you, "I would rather have someone shoot at me." than to pick up the phone and call a teenager and offer them money. Think about that. And what this, what this impresses on you is that human beings fear two things more than anything else in the world, death and rejection. And it turns out, based on my own little focus group of people who have faced death right in the face, right, is that people fear rejection more than death. So my first question for you is, why is that? Yeah, well, I mean, we are biologically wired, as you said, to to uh, avoid getting thrown out of the tribe. Uh, we don't want that to happen. And so, uh, yeah, we do everything within our power to not get rejected. And now that we live in the 21st century uh, and our brains haven't caught up to this new world, it's a huge problem. So we've got to hack uh, our brains both um, uh, in a like almost a physiological way. So literally kind of trying to change our physiology and also change our thought patterns as soon as the rejection happens, change that interpretation so that, you know, our brains want to interpret it as death. <laughs> and when you said rejection and death, like our brains see that as, as equal, right? right? They're the same thing. And so we've got to catch those thoughts as soon as possible and replace them with something more productive. Right. And the problem here is that People think, well, rejection and death, you know, they're really not connected. Well, your brain doesn't just go rejection, death. It says, oh, I didn't make the sale. What if this is the beginning of a slump? What if I don't make a sale all week, all month? What if I lose my job? What if I can't get a new job? What if I've got to mortgage the house? What if I'm going to lose the house? What if my family leaves me? On and on and on and on. And before you know it, they've got themselves mentally, you know, living under the overpass when that whole process takes about five seconds in your brain. It's you know it's probably even less. It's very, very quick. And so the brain is always trying to say, what does this mean and how can I protect you? And unfortunately, your brain is not always your best, your best friend. That's true. And, and of course, all that creates worry, which is the most useless of all emotions. And Dale Carnegie talked about that over 100 years ago, about how worry creates this debilitating loop inside of us that, uh, that holds us back. But Andrew, when you were talking about 
this physiological thing, Richard, I, I and uh, you know, I you you kind of nailed it. It's the way that our brain works. Like, and what I try to help people understand, because I think a lot of people feel shameful that they have a hard time with rejection. Like it, it, it actually causes them to want to go hide. What I want to help people understand is not, it's not a psychological problem. It is a physiological problem. It is the way that you were wired as a human being, because at one point in our evolution, getting rejected did mean death. Because back when we were living in caves and we were living in teepees and huts and we were depending on each other in small groups, if you crossed the line and got kicked out of the group, it was survival for real. I mean, you got kicked out in the cold. You had no help. You had no safety. You had no food. You had no warm fire. You were going to die. So human beings over time who were more likely to pass on their genes were the people that were more sensitive to being rejected and understood where the line was drawn. So on, on one side of the sword, it's a really good thing for us to be able to understand how to work with each other in groups and stay connected. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, with so many things that we have to do in sales and life, it could really hold us back. Absolutely. And, and, and that's kind of why we ended up writing when they say no, because, you know, for 20 years, we're telling people go out and hear no more often. And from a numbers game philosophy, that is, I mean, that, that is the secret to sales in, in the smallest, most micro way, right? You've got to be telling your story to as many people as you can, as fast as you can, in the best way possible. Uh, what we found out, though, what we realized was pushing them, dragging them, kicking and screaming to do it. And then people started to do it, and we watched them do it successfully. But then the second piece to that, what we always heard was, but then what do I do when I get the no? And we actually saw that people were um, paralyzed with what to say next. Um, they needed the, the thoughts to change their physiology. So what to think. Um, and then really what to do next, right, is to not see it as the end and to, to learn how to deal with that no. So it's really about taking... Um, as you said, a positive, it isn't built in our, into our physiology. It is a positive thing, but how can we reframe it? How can we kind of hack it for today's world so that we can get as much positive out of being rejected as possible? I got that. I mean, it makes absolute sense to me because that's what we spend a lot of time in sales talking about is what happens after they say no. That's why if you type in objections, you're going to get a lot of results. One of the things that you typed in, Richard, was uh, was closing. And you said in the book that like you typed in closing, you got more hits than Kim Kardashian has searches like <laughs> 775,000. You're right. Like the sexy part of sales is closing. And you said that it's probably more of an opening issue than a closing issue. And I want to give you a quote from Jim Rohn. He said that uh, that asking is the beginning of receiving. So hmm. like if you think about it, you've got to start with an ask of some sort. And you were talking about the stories that we tell in our in our head after we get no. Uh, but sometimes those stories we tell in our in our head before we even get started actually create or exacerbate the stories that happen after we say no. And and so I want to address two things is. Uh, is the, this this whole concept of opening? Like, how how do you open, and where is the beginning, and how do you deal with that? You know, for lack of better better words, that bullshit story you keep telling yourself about what's going to happen after you ask, and almost in a self fulfilling prophecy, creating that through your intention in the ask. So let's talk a little bit more more, more about opening first, and then we're going to talk about what happens you know after they punch you in the face with no. Right. Well, you know, you go to any bookstore and go to this, go to the sales shelf and you will find, as you mentioned, um, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 books with the word close in the title. Right. I mean, close early, close often, always be closing, close, close, close. Zig Ziglar's Secrets of Closing the Sale. I mean, you know, there's just a plethora of them. I defy anybody to go into that shelf and find a book titled How to Open the Sale. Now, Every now and then, there's a good chapter in it. You cover that in some of your books. Um, you know, so opening the sale is critical, and yet we always think of it as the least important part, and somehow closing is the most important part. Uh, like somehow um, putting is the most important part of golf, right? That's the close when you put the ball in the cup, discounting the 386 yards before it. And so people have to start thinking about opening as being just as important as closing. It, it sets the stage. Um, I think the biggest problem that people have is that 
Um, a lot of salespeople think that selling is presenting. They think it's um, explaining who their company is, explaining how they got started with the company, talking about the product, talking about the features and benefits and what it does. And, you know, they all of that. I mean, all of that is at best the middle of a sale or the body of a sale. And then they go from that and they go to close. Well, if you haven't opened properly, then closing becomes a huge monumental task. But if you've opened properly, and by that, I mean all of the things that happen early in a sale, it is the pleasantries. It is the smile. It is years ago. I mean, geez, years ago, it used to be the handshake, right? Well, unfortunately, that's gone. At best, it's a fist bump. Um, but then it becomes the focus on the company, and it becomes the focus on their issues. And so it's all of the questions that we ask um, in order to do kind of a needs analysis. It's the definition of a consultant. I mean, what is a consultant? It's somebody who asks questions, reviews the information, and makes recommendations. But so many salespeople rush into making recommendations and then saying, do you want to buy, that they forgot that the important thing was to gain the trust of the prospect. And you gain trust by asking questions about them. And you also learn a bunch of things that you would have been wrong about in your presentation if you hadn't asked the questions. And so a lot of times, you know, one or two well-asked questions with one or two answers will close a sale more quickly than all the closes in the world. So that's why we are very big on making sure you open properly. Well, if you think about it, most, most of your asks and sales are going to be micro-ask, micro-commitments is what mm -hmm. we call them. So you're asking for a next step. You're asking to reach a decision maker. You're asking to see invoices. You're asking to get more information about their data or what they're doing. So these are relatively benign asks. And typically when you get no for those asks, it's just because you haven't given them enough value to expend more of their time with you. Uh, but I do I, I buy that opening piece. Uh, yesterday I was on a sales call with a rep who sells a $25,000. That's the start software solution. And we hopped onto a virtual call. Uh, the background was horrible, had a big window behind him, so it looked like he was in witness protection. He was wearing a hoodie. Now, I'm wearing this. Like, well, I was actually wearing a – actually, this is a kind of a flashy suit for a podcast, but uh, I was wearing just a blue uh, blazer. I was in this studio, so I had um, the a different little different set and have a microphone in front of me, and I was instantly turned off. Like I was instantly in the mode of, no, I, I gave you enough respect to show up and do it in a way that made me, you know, a human being to you. And you didn't give me enough respect to even dress the part to sell me a really expensive software solution. Now, this kid eventually recovered because he did exactly what you what you said, Richard. He, he, he started listening to me. But even at first, he wasn't even listening. One of the yeah. things he was doing was he was typing his notes into his computer. And I cannot emphasize this enough. I'm just going to get on my soapbox for a moment. But stop putting notes into a computer with your fingers. That is not typing. Mm -hmm. Just the other day ago, we were in a, 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 a call with a big marketing agency to spend, this is you know six figures north. And my wife, who was our CFO, walked out and was completely turned off because the account manager spent the entire time talk, talk, typing her computer. And my wife said, what was she doing? Like doing email? Now I knew she was taking notes, but the point is, is that you can't even remember what the person said when you're typing into a computer. So when you go back to them and you prove to them you weren't listening, instantly you're met with a person who is cold, who knows you didn't care. And so the no's become a lot harsher and you created that yourself. So I think this opening piece is huge. But let's go back to this. Uh, this Richard, you were talking about these stories you play in our heads. How do we play a story in our head before we even open that puts us in a state where we compel our prospect or our customer to tell us no? Like our mental state changes. We become more insecure. We change our body language. How does that happen? And what are those stories we tell ourselves? Andrea, you're better at answering this question than I am. Yeah, this is kind of my specialty. It's her thing. Well, well, I, I think um, the first thing, Jeb, yeah. is that you know, when we have been talking about go for no for the last 20 years, one of the things that we've been pigeonholed in um, is that people assume that we want people to 
hope and pray and wish for a no, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, Cause that's what go for no suggests, right? It's like, oh, I see you want me to just go out and hear as many no's as possible and do a bad job. And of course that would be crazy. So the difference in, um, there's a difference between expecting a no and accepting a no. And so when it comes to the stories okay, that we that. tell- I'm going to stop the tape right there, okay? okay. All right, so I want to play this back for the listeners. There is a difference between expecting a no and accepting a no. Just write that down on your notepad because some there's some wisdom that's about to drop here. Keep going. So when you think about it from that standpoint, when you, that when you think about the stories that you tell yourself, you can't tell yourself stories based on expectation. So that is that looks like making assumptions about what somebody's going to decide, do, or spend. You look at a company's profile, you glance at it, and you go like, okay, I know that they only have X amount of budget. I know that they buy in this window. I know that, you know, you come up with all these things. So those stories are really there to protect us from hearing no. So we make all these assumptions and we close things down and wall off opportunities, maybe even just look at the company and go like, hey, based on this, I'm not even gonna call them. I'm just gonna get a flat out no, I know that. And so that's the expectation that gets set in your mind. And so you make all these decisions and we've seen this time and time again with all the salespeople that we've talked to over the last 20 years is they have the expectation. So instead what we wanna do is change it from expectation to acceptance, which is, uh, if it is a no, I can accept it, and then I will come up with a strategy of what to do next. If it makes sense to keep moving forward, asking additional questions, following up with them in three months, whatever the case may be. But though that's really the differentiation. And it all comes down to, in my I my number one word for how to get around this is assumptions. You have got to let go of your assumptions. They're only there to protect you. They're only there to, to again, protect um, your ego. It's your brain doing it. And your brain comes up with all of these fantastic stories of why people will say no just to protect you. And so now you're left with a handful of opportunities. And the reality is you had no idea what was really going to happen. Right. And a, and a funny story here that I think illustrates this. When we first wrote Go For No, and I have to tell you that my father was um, at the time, the number one seller of General Motors product in their history on the fleet side of the business, and wrote the book. I dedicated it to him, sent it to him. He reads the book, and he gets so inspired, he went through and he dusted off 20 files of clients he hadn't called on in over five years. And he said, I just expected that they were never going to say yes to me. And he said, I called all 20 of them, and two of them ended up you know, signing up with him to buy their fleet vehicles. So, you know, this expectations that we that we place in the selling process always end up hurting us. Um, but Andrea is right. We have to accept it and then try to figure out what to do with it. And that's why I had her answer the question. <laughs> well, and, I mean, that's the difference between assuming you're going to get a yes and assuming you're going to get a no. If you assume you're going to get a no, you change your language, you change your, your the, the way that you uh, that you uh, approach them with your tone of voice and the way that your mm -hmm. body looks. Like you you come in as insecure and not confident. I, I just believe that like the the fastest way to a yes is relax assertive confidence. People lean mm -hmm. into confidence, right? So. If you you can create no's that didn't exist just because you go in assuming they're going to say no to you. And that just like it just changes your language. You go, you know, would it be OK if maybe we could kind of find some sort of time to get together like in that insecurity? The other human being, God help us, we're human. Like we see weakness, we pounce and we punch you in the nose, especially if you're dealing with a director level person, like a director person who's like bullet pointed or an analyzer person who's not seeing any of this. They're just going to they're just going to run right over you. And by the way, that creates even more insecurity. Uh, what about like in the opening of this early on? Um, one of the things that we coach salespeople on is uh, not getting caught up in red herrings. So, for example, the customer asks you a really hard question. It's a deep question, like about some feature of your of your software, or they uh, they say, you know what, you know, there's no way I could do business with you if your prices weren't here. So they they come in really early on in the opening when you're just setting the agenda, and salespeople have a tendency to pounce on those red herrings, versus, like you said, Richard, taking the time to ask the questions and really understand what it means 
or in some cases, just ignoring it altogether because maybe you're in New Jersey and people just punch you in the nose to see what you'll take. Or, you know, maybe they don't know what to say or what to ask early on. Like they, they just they're just throwing out the way they think they know how to buy. But salespeople right. who have that expectation or they've already created that worry that you were talking about, Richard. They walk in and the person says something. They treat something that wasn't a no as a no and therefore create higher level knows that they can't actually get through. Talk a little bit right. about that. Well, I think one of the um, issues is uh, we walk into a, a selling situation with a game plan. And as you said, we get thrown these red herrings. We get, you know, we immediately get an objection. We haven't even, we haven't even started the selling process. And like, if you don't do this, I, I won't do that. And I think it's very easy in that, in that, moment to now find yourself on the prospect's agenda. And you've got to keep reminding yourself, wait a second, I want the prospect to be on my agenda. Now, that doesn't mean that I've got to take this person through every single step and they've got to hit these 23 things that I've set in my mind. But you have to remember, what was the agenda? And usually for us, our agenda is always to start with learning about the prospect. We don't want to jump into a presentation of who we are and what we do and how much it costs. You know, that's something that's something for later. And so when we get thrown something like so, so what do you guys charge for a keynote speech, right? Which is what we do for a living. Well, it'd be very easy to just throw out the dollar amount. They say no, and then it's over. So I have to remember what our agenda is. Our agenda is to find out about them. And so the minute they ask that, I will say, wow, that's a great question. Let me ask you a question. How many meetings a year do you guys have? How many people come to your meetings? What's the, you know, what's the general goal of your annual sales conference, right? You know, is it just to develop community and camaraderie or is it to teach skills? What, what is, so I'm putting, I'm putting them in the front of the process by showing that I care about them, but this is on my agenda. My agenda was to gather information. Now, I'm still going to answer their question, but I'm not going to answer it immediately. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think the other thing is, I, mean, I can't remember if we put this in the book. I think so. But the mindset, Jeb, is kind of like a, a you know play to win mindset versus playing not to lose. And this is a go for no mindset, which is walk in with a, again, not an expectation, but an understanding that, you know, this is um, this is a long term thing. You don't walk in with a, okay, this has to be a yes today and I've got to get this deal or else because then you are just playing not to lose and every red herring will throw you, you'll get worried, you'll get panicked, you'll lose your confidence. Um, and so there's got to be a, a level of detachment of, you know, where you are not so emotionally invested uh, that you allow those things to throw you. Yeah. And so um, it's kind of see, seeing that as the long-term play to win uh, mindset is really what we're talking about. And I think that's why it matters so much that you are clear on your objective before you go into a sales call and you're clear on what your next step is. What's my targeted next step? What am I closing for at the end of the call? And for leaders who are listening, one of the things that I always do if I'm sitting with a, a rep in their car or we're you know sitting side by side before we're going to drop on a drop on a call if we're in a digital sales or a virtual sales position, is I just ask them what's the objective of the call. And what's interesting is to see how many reps say it's to close the sale. I'm I'm closing the sale day, and I go okay. Well, what stage are we in? What do we know? And that's what you need to do as a coach, like helping your salespeople. What do you know? What, what stage are you in? Why do you feel like right now is the time to close the deal? And in most cases, they're misaligned. Like they've got an ask misaligned with where they are in the sales process. So they need to close for something. You can't walk out of a sales call without asking for something, but maybe not asking for the sale because at that point you're setting yourself up. And like you said, if you go in with this expectation that I'm going to close the sale and your probability of closing the sale is really, really low, then you see every little obstacle as something that's going to keep you from your objective and you begin fighting and arguing. And that's one of the, the chapters in your book. You talk about why arguing, you know, after you get a no is a really bad, bad, bad strategy. Talk a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, and we, and, and that's just the beginning of it, right? So uh, arguing, attacking, um, pouting, 
bridge burning, um, like, okay, fine, you know, I can't believe you said you decided to go another direction and, and building this, you had this great relationship that you were building and now you've destroyed it. Um, so yeah, I, I think there is a, it's, it's not a lot of salespeople, but we have seen uh, a number of them. And we, we have a grid in the front of our book that talks about the four selling styles. And there's one in particular that cares most about results and the least about relationships based on those two concerns. And um, it's a salesperson we call the adversary. And they will argue or attack and bully and question. And we've all had, we've all bought from a salesperson like that. And a lot of us have said yes, just because we've had an attack, we've had an argument. And just yesterday, I think I was on Twitter and having a discussion with a couple of people because I tweeted out and said, you know, um, a bad yes looks like returns. Uh, it looks like bad reviews. It looks like um, not getting referrals. And so you don't want a bad yes. You would rather have a good no. And that is a go for no position. It's definitely something that we talk about when they say no. So if you're going to argue with somebody, if you're going to bully them into getting a yes, those backfire a lot. And half the time, you know, the deal won't even close. Well, you talk about in the book that buyers are sometimes liars. And mm -hmm. but there's a reason why buyers lie to a lot of salespeople, whether you're, you know, the adversary type salesperson or not. One of the reasons is that they bring in a lot of emotional baggage from all of their other conversations with salespeople, good and bad. And some of that baggage is I've been bullied. I've been made to feel small. You've made me look bad. I don't really want conflict. So buyers who when they tell, you no, like put their head down waiting for, you know, what else is coming will tell you things that aren't necessarily true, usually to protect their own emotions. Like they're usually just focused on making sure there's no conflict to get away from you. And we create that environment when, when they feel like it's an adversary situation. And that almost always begins, as you said, Andrea, because we are connected or we're, you were attached to an outcome versus detached from the outcome. In other words, we can, we can go into the call and no matter what happens, we're going to be okay with it. And that typically comes from having a full pipeline. Like if you have an empty pipeline and you're selling from desperation, you're typically going to be more attached. But that's, that is a, that's something that you hone. Like that's an emotional ability. It's part of emotional intelligence to be able to hone the ability to walk into any situation. And no matter what happens, you're okay with it because you have the confidence in yourself, as Richard was talking about, the, the ability to ask questions and the ability to move through someone through a process and the ability to adjust. Someone says no to this. That's OK. Let's move over here. That's just telling me that's a path we're not going to be able to go down. I want to move to this direction over here. So for me, for example, in those conversations, Richard, when, when I'm doing discovery, I'm typically poking at things with my questions. I'm looking for sensitive spots. I'm looking for places where there is emotion or there is uh, something wrong. And what will happen to me in those conversations, because they're totally organic, we call them dual process, right? So I'm in the conversation moving toward an outcome, uh, is that I'll get a no. Like the person will go, yeah, it's not really a big deal. Now, my instinct, because, you know, I've, I, of the cave story is, oh, man, I went down the wrong, that's bad, that was, but what I've learned how to do is go, okay, next question, move over to the next right. thing. That's not a place. And I see a lot of young salespeople who get in those situations and they, they don't know what to say. They got a no. The no was, the no wasn't a direct no. The no was just, that was that, that's not an issue here. I, I don't have that problem. I don't have that issue, but they take it as a no. And then they move into pitching. Like they, they shift out of questioning and go right into talking and, or go right into arguing. And that becomes a problem for them. Hey, walk us through the, the, the other, the, the these four different selling styles. I thought that was the part of your book that was like for me was really intriguing was to think about, cause we always talk about buyer styles. Right. Everybody talks about buyer styles. Nobody talks about selling styles. Like that was brilliant. Let's talk about that and how that impacts salespeople uh, in sales conversations and, and what they do after they run into a no. Yeah. Well, you know, all salespeople, it doesn't matter who you are or what you sell have two primary concerns. Um, the first one is results. 
And it's, you know, did you make the sale? Did you bring in money for your company? Did you get your commission? Everyone ultimately wants to get results. The other primary concern um, would be relationships. Uh, did the prospect enjoy the actual selling process? Did they come to know, like, and trust you? Uh, did they, um, at the end of the process, even if they bought from you, did they enjoy it enough that they will give you referrals and they will tell other people and, you know, and speak positively about you and your company? So these two things, the results and relationships, and if you think of it kind of as a grid with results on one side, low concern for results and a high concern for results, and then the other is relationships, right, low to high, what you realize is that these four very clear selling styles um, emerge. So you've got this selling style that Andrea mentioned earlier, somebody who's got a very high concern for results. They, have, they are going into the sale to make the sale. They do not care if the product or service is right for the prospect. They don't care if the prospect enjoyed the process. They are going to bludgeon and bully their way to a yes, no matter what it takes. Well, that's a selling style that is kind of like a dictator, if you will, or an adversary. It's somebody who's very adversarial. They see the whole process as a, as a battle. Um, if you want to use a visualization, it would be a shark. You know, if, you, if you've ever been into an auto dealership, although they're getting better, maybe because of you, Jeb, I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, but, you know, in the, the history of auto dealerships is you pull into the lot and immediately you see three people in the lobby, they're drinking coffee and you see somebody puts their coffee down because it's they're up and here they come. Mm, 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 mm. Here comes the shark swimming out, you know, to do battle with you. Um, that's why people don't like going to auto dealerships. That's why people walk into retail stores and whenever they're asked, um, can I help you? They say, I'm just looking. Well, they're not just looking. They're just looking for something that they need and they're going to be just buying if they find it. But this shield goes up. And so the, the adversary creates all different types of problems. They put up big numbers in the short run, but they kill a business in the long run. Then you have the opposite, which would be somebody who really wants to be your friend. This is somebody who um, we refer to as the, as the retriever. You know, it's, uh, I was a retriever when I worked in menswear. Uh, if you came in and you said, hey, I'm looking for a you know, black suit, 42 long, I would go retrieve it. Right, I'm going to run over and grab the suit. I'm going to bring it back. So I would retrieve it, but I would never take a chance at showing you the shirts, ties, shoes, socks, belt, underwear, collar pin. I'm not going to show you the rest of it because I want your friendship. And the last thing I want for you to think is that I'm a shark. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you what you ask for and no more. And so the relationship is number one. I won't even talk about the, the person who has no concern for relationships um, or results. Uh, they do sneak their way onto sales teams every yeah, now and then. We yeah. call them the uninvolved. Yeah, they're, they're clearly the uninvolved and they don't last very long, of course. Um, but then we have the selling style is the one that gets it, the one that succeeds long-term, the one who not only makes a sale, but builds a relationship. Um, and it is the advisor. It's somebody who goes into a sales situation not saying my goal here is to close this person no matter what. It's my goal here is to go in and learn enough to determine if our product or service is the right fit. And if it is, then I'm going to do everything with my power to make sure they say yes, because I know it's in their best interest as well as in ours. Um, we refer to that as a sales lion because it's the perfect um, visualization for courage. If you think of the Wizard of Oz, right? You have the cowardly lion. Um, you know, you, you have to have a certain amount of heart uh, to be great in sales. And a lot of people take that the wrong way. They think it means, oh, you have to have heart, like you've got to go in and battle. No, you have to have enough heart to care about the person you're selling to. You have to have enough heart to determine if there really is a good fit. And then if there is, then you've got, it, then you've got to do the right thing, which is to understand that to sell them is to serve them. And if people think of those four selling styles, um, and a lot of people are going to watch this um, watch this podcast or listen to it, they're going to immediately recognize who they are. They're, they're going to see it in themselves. And it's always a battle to try to move yourself up and to the right into this advisor uh, advisor category. Yeah, and I, I just want to, Jeb, if you don't mind, I just want to add 
one thing too, and this is something that we've also noticed from a go for no standpoint, is so many of the people that are the high relationship people, low results people, they, uh, uh, the friend style, their biggest concern is looking like that adversary. And they think when we say go for no, they think that means badger, push, twist somebody's arm, force them into a yes. And it's actually the exact opposite. You know, our, our point is no, accept a no as part of the process, accept that you're going to hear no a lot and, and take it with a grain of salt and keep moving forward. And so that's what we have found over the last 20 years. Our biggest challenge, and I bet you see the same, is taking people who find themselves, who, who love to be people, love are people pleasers. They love other people. They're networkers, they, but they they think that sales is negative and they think that when we say things like go for no or one more call, they start sweating because they think, oh, that means I have to be pushy. And it's not true. Yeah, it's uh, it's the there's a something we call the empathy scale, which is, you know, go back to brain science. But they're there. These are the people that you're talking about that are high on the empathy scale and, mm -hmm. and they're low on the outcome scale. So when they're in situations where they have to move to the next step, which sales is a series of, of asking for a series of commitments. They feel like they're being too pushy or they play that, that, that tape in their head about what an icky salesperson is like and they hold back. So I always find those folks when I'm in, you know, I'm in doing pipeline reviews with my clients and I'm like, okay, what's the next step on this deal? And it's like, well, you know, I'm going to call them next week and Mary's doing this and they're doing that. We're going to have lunch. We're going to, the deal's not moving. And the sharks on the other hand, over time, statistically, in, in transactional sales where relationships don't matter, they're going to crush everybody. And that's mm -hmm. why they did so well in car sales for so long. But these days, those that, it actually matters because people who are buying cars are looking for an experience. And by the way, cars cost a lot more money than they used to. So mm -hmm. they, they, But they don't do very well in, in long, long cycle sales. But this advisor that you were talking about, that's really the sweet spot. That is a person who can lead with empathy and always remember outcome. So they can be in the moment with you, empathetic, step in your shoes, see things from your standpoint, do discovery like Richard was talking about before a keynote, and then build a value bridge that connects the dots between what you told them and, and how they're going to take care of you. But when it comes to asking for what they want, they don't hesitate and they ask with assumption. And the reason that they do is that they believe that because they were an advisor, because they led with empathy, that they earned the right to ask. So essentially what they've done is they've reshaped the way that no looks to them because they've said, hey, I've done all of this homework. I've done all the right things. I, I deserve an answer for the next thing versus you know, the person who is – uh, you know, is so high on the empathy scale that they 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 just can't seem to push them away. They don't think that they deserve to get a yes. They don't think they deserve to get to, to ask, and uh, and it just becomes a a vicious circle for them. Now, one of the things that I think you have to do in those situations, if you're an outcome driven person, and I am, uh, I have to be very intentional about empathy. So, uh, Richard, you said, you know, what are my expectations going into a call? What is my objective? Why am I going in? I've got to tell myself that story before I walk in. And sometimes mm -hmm. I've got to look in the mirror and go, listen to people, listen to people, listen to people. And if you're high on the empathy scale, what you have to know is what am I going to ask for at the end of this call? And you have to say it out loud, say it to yourself, write it down on a piece of paper, because if you don't, when it comes to the end, you're going to equivocate and you won't ask. And that becomes a, a real issue for you. So, let me, I want to shift into what happens next. Okay. So you, you go for no, cause you taught me to do that. Go for no. I hear you in my head all the times. I'm like, here's Richard and Andrew go for no. And sometimes I don't like, sometimes I'm sitting there and I'm like, I don't want to ask. Cause I don't want them to tell me, no, I don't want to find out. Go for no Jeb. So I do it. And then they go, no, what do I do next? All right. So the very first thing that you do is uh, step one in that process is interrupt any negative thought pattern that you have that you've screwed up. 
And, and that's where we, we find that a lot of people start berating themselves like, oh, I did something wrong. I'm so bad at this. I'm not going to make it. Uh, and so we've got to interrupt that thought pattern because uh, we can't hate ourselves to, to becoming a great salesperson. <laughs> that does not work. Uh, so interrupt that thought pattern, immediately replace it with um, basically the next question is, great, stay positive. And then ask yourself, what's my next move? And to your point, I really liked what you just said there. That was a such a brilliant summation, I think, of the strategy of what we're recommending. And that is, what's my next move? And have that at the ready. So know in that scenario what you are going to say in that moment. So what's the next step? So it's great. Uh, well, hey, listen, I'm glad that at least you came to a decision. We've been going back and forth for a couple months on this. So I'm glad you make a decision. So uh, this goes to the idea of don't bridge burn. So don't bully, don't burn any bridge because you don't know if they just told you like, you know what, we ended up going with another supplier. We ended up going a different direction. Uh, that's not the moment to pout or burn a bridge because that thing could fall apart in a week and you could be getting a phone call or an email later if you handle it properly. Yes. So it's got to be handled properly and you've got to have that next step, next move question at the ready so that you can easily ask it. And for us, it's how do you, how do we stay engaged? How do we stay connected to this person? So in Thank them for making the decision. Thank them for sharing it with you. Whatever you want to say in that moment, we've got a couple suggestions in the book, basically just like that. And then, uh, you know, do you mind if I check back with you? I'd like to make sure that things are going well. Can can I give you a call in six months just to see if anything's changed, and have that connection? And that's that's one example of how to stay connected. Right. And and what the probably the thing that I use more than any other. Um, if you want to call it a uh, pre-planned technique is, and this comes back to this open body close, opening well, because if you haven't opened well, then this doesn't work, um, is, you know, if, if I've asked all of the right questions and they've given me all of the answers that make me believe that the product or service that I'm selling is a match, and then we get to the very end of this process, and I know the price is right, the size is right, the timing's right, the product's right, it's all right. And then I say, you know, are you ready to go forward? Um, or why don't we start on Thursday or whatever my closing question is going to be? And they say, no, I have to tell you the thing that I use all the time is, and it's one of our chapters, is I go, huh, I'm really surprised. And it always sets the person kind of back a little bit, you know, like you're surprised and thing. Yeah, I'm, wow, I'm really surprised, you know, based on everything I asked you. And everything you told me, there's no doubt in my mind that this is the right product or the right service um, for you to move forward with. And I think, at least I thought until now, that you saw that too. Could you tell me why you're deciding not to go forward? And if you haven't asked questions in the beginning, then you can't use that. And if you are surprised, then just say, wow, I'm surprised. I mean, people are always kind of like, they get very tense and, okay, what is what am I going to do? It's just like, wow, I'm really surprised that I, I don't understand. Could you, could you just explain that to me? And I will admit to something here, which is kind of embarrassing. I will say I'm surprised to, in sales. I might say it two or three times um, because every time I'm surprised, that's just what I say. I am surprised. So when Andrea says, have an idea of what you're going to say and how you're going to react, right? When somebody tells you no, um, you have to have some plan because otherwise sitting there in silence is not going to get you there. When I say I'm surprised, tell me why you're saying no. Now I'm selling again. I'm not talking anymore. I'm listening, but I'm selling because they are now giving me the information I need to move forward. I think the other thing to this too, Jeb, is, um, you know, this, this book, when they say no, has, has a few different recipes in it. And what I have seen that salespeople always want, and I get it, I get it, especially in our group, you know, we've got a private coaching group and everybody wants the thing, right? They want the magic bullet. Like what's the thing. And this is why selling is both science. There's definite science to it and it's art. And you have to have, you, you learn from experience, which 
direction you're going to go in that moment, which path you're going to take. Sometimes you, you can be really comfortable with somebody, so comfortable and joke with them and be like, oh, I'm surprised and mess around with them and go like, wow, you're making a, like a huge bad decision. And it would be like a total joke, right? You can laugh with them. You, you, you have like a comfort level. Um, and there's other people, other prospects who you would never do that to it would be totally inappropriate. And it would be, it would look adversarial, right? And so you'd never go there. And so I think there's just a certain amount, well, I know there's just a certain amount of, uh, of, of art to this and you have to practice these things. You have to get yourself in enough opportunities to practice these things. And sometimes it doesn't go well. And sometimes it's awkward. And sometimes you mess up and somebody will yell at you or it's embarrassing or it just falls flat. And you go like, okay, that, that approach didn't work. But that's just part of it. You just you learn that way and, and you get good enough after time to, in that moment, make a decision of which recipe am I going to pull out for this particular situation and this particular person. Yeah, I think that's, I think the, the, when you think about what happens after they say no, what, when they say no, it almost begins before they say no, having a plan. Cause I think that if I think about the times when I'm sitting there staring at somebody, cause I have done that, like, you know, and it's usually something transactional where I'm asking for something. It's like, I don't have, I never had a plan for what would they, what, I thought they would say yes. So I didn't know what, I didn't have a plan for what happened when they said no. And that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, that's really surprising. It's, it's such a great, that's fantastic. I love that. Uh, a lot of times I'll say, how come? I just go, how come? And, yeah. you know, this, that's just my way because I grew up on a dirt road in Georgia. Uh, it, but I used to have this boss uh, who we call it murder boarding, but we would basically take a deal when you were going in. If it was something big, we didn't do this for everything, but you're going in for something substantial. And we would find every pathway to know that you could get to and every reason why they would say no. And then we would practice the responses for all those reasons, even things that were just way out in the left field. And then one of the things that he always insisted, you had a fallback position. What are you going to ask for? If you don't get that, what are you going to ask for? Because his belief was that you should always be able to walk out with something, even if it's just maintaining the relationship. Can I ask for lunch in a month from now? But I'm asking for anything that'll, that'll get a yes. Part of that was just a little bit of saving face. At least I got something, you know. But, mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of it was just making sure that you had a plan. And what I always found through that process of uh, taking every single no and getting a, you know, what if they do this? What if they do that? What if they do this? What if they say that? What if we're in that situation? That it was always like a hundred times easier when you were there in person. And funny enough, my wife just experienced this. She's not a salesperson, but she had to go to our county government and argue a tax issue. So she she was nervous. You you've met Carrie. So she was nervous. She was like, you know, beside herself, couldn't sleep, and not her not her thing to put herself out there. She's gonna be far on the empathy scale. And she sits down with our attorney, goes through what she's gonna say, she practices the entire thing. And then I called her and said, How'd it go? She goes, God, it was like that was the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. She goes, you know, I was just there was nothing to it. And that was because she had already gone through every potential scenario of what could go wrong. And so at that point, her brain was already prepared for, it'll be okay. It's going to be fine no matter what. So I think that, I think that matters greatly. To, to wrap things up, walk us through what you want people to take away from this, this book. And I'm going to hold it up again. When They Say No... And you can get this book on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And I highly recommend it. It's just fantastic. It's easy reading. Uh, I love the, the way that you've broken the chapters up in small chunks. Uh, I've been doing that with some of my books, and, and, I, and I, I like it a lot. It's just easy to consume. Uh, so you can, like, take a chapter every single day and learn something. Uh, and, uh, but what do you want people to take away from this? Like, if, you, if you, you wrote this with a purpose and an objective, you're no use successful when people do this. Yeah. Um, our goal is to really empower people with some easy tools of exactly what to think when they get a no. A couple things, a couple tools in their toolkit for exactly what to say and, and obviously what to do when they get a no. So we have finally, it only took 20 years, Jeb. Um, we, we were inspired by you. <laughs> <laughs> and your books. And by the way, selling selling in a crisis has the 55 
a little <laughs> tiny bite-sized chat, which is awesome. Um, but we were inspired by you. And I told Richard, I'm like, I'm like, why can't you be more like Jeb? We need to write a book. We've got go for no for 20 years. We need to write a follow-up to give people some tools. And so that's really what this is. It's like, what, you know, it's great to tell people to put yourself out there and be willing to get those no's. And now um, I think this will give people a lot of uh, hopefully confidence and courage because that's, you know, that's so much of this is the more you do these things and you, the more you see, I think we, one of our things is uh, if you get a no, you won't die. The more you, you recognize that to be true. Um, and even Mark Hunter, uh, I think we have a quote from Mark Hunter in there about that, that you that nobody has ever died from getting a no, no children or animals are harmed. Uh, and and so you just have to do it. You just have to have that courage and confidence. Yeah, and I'll, good, I'll, good yeah, and I'll, I'll wrap up by, um, I'll just wrap up by saying uh, um, our good friend and long-term sales trainer, Joel Weldon, uh, said to us one day, uh, he said, you know, you don't get paid for the yeses, you get paid for the noes. He said, if, if everybody said yes, salespeople wouldn't be the highest profession, highest paid profession in the world. You know, we get paid for the no's. And I think that's a really profound statement. And I think what our book um, is designed to do is to have you understand that no is a part of the process. No's are going to happen. And if you're going to be a professional salesperson, you also have to be a good boy scout or a good girl scout. You have to be prepared. You have to be prepared. And you have to understand, no's are going to come. You can't get flat-footed. You're not going to be perfect at it when you start, but there's no reason that you should be in this profession six months, six years, you know, God forbid, 26 years, and still not know what you're going to do when you hear the word no. So yeah, you have to get prepared. And if you get prepared, you're going to be great at this. There you go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase what Richard just said. Winging it is stupid. So get prepared. Awesome. Well, so glad to be able to spend some time with you today. And uh, I'm going to hold this book up one more time for everybody because you got to go buy this book. It is called When They Say No. It's fantastic. It's awesome. Go get it. And if you don't have Go For No, get that too. Read them both together. And uh, after 20 years, it is a book that holds up very, very well. It's almost brand new. Every time I read it, it's awesome. Uh, Richard and Andrea, tell us how people can come find you, learn about you, get information, get you to come in for a keynote. We're well-branded. Nobody owns no, Jeb. <laughs> so gofornow.com, they can find us there. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, go for no. We Beautiful. are there. Awesome. With lots of motivation. Lots of motivation. <laughs> motivation. Very good. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me on the Sales Gravy Podcast. And folks, before you take off, make sure you go to Sales Gravy University and check out all of the amazing courses that we have from top experts around the world, including me, by the way. I've got a brand new course that's going up today called The Five Elements of Effective Sales Presentations. Uh, you can go take your very first course for free using the code free course when you go to learn.salesgravy.com. That's learn.salesgravy.com. I'll see you next time on the Sales Gravy Podcast.